Welcome, boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, to Reading for Fun, Profit, and Understanding and the Development of a Visual Critical Thinking, otherwise known as Need to Read, which we all do. And today, or right now, I'm going to read a story, as I promised, about Christmas. And it's by Truman Capote, and it's called A Christmas Memory. Imagine a morning in late November, a coming of winter morning more than 20 years ago. Consider the kitchen of a spreading old house in a, in a country town. A great black stove is its main feature, but there is also a big round table in a fireplace with two rocking chairs placed in front of it. Just today, the fireplace commenced its seasonal roar. A woman with shorn white hair is standing at the kitchen window. She is wearing tennis shoes and a shapeless gray sweater over a summery calico dress. She is small and sprightly, like a bantam hen, but due to a long youthful er illness, her shoulders are pitifully hunched. Her face is remarkable, not unlike Lincoln's, craggy like that and tinted by sun and wind, but it is delicate too, finely boned, and her eyes are sherry-colored and timid. Oh my, she explains, her breath smoking the window pane. It's fruitcake weather. The person to whom she is speaking is myself. I am seven. She is 60. Something. We are cousins, very distant cousins. We have lived together, well, as long as I can remember. Other people inhabit the house, relatives. And though they have power over us and frequently make us cry, we are not on the whole, too much aware of them. We are each other's best friend. She calls me Buddy in memory of a boy who was formerly her best friend. The other Buddy died in the 1880s when she was still a child. She is still a child. I knew it before I got out of bed, she says, turning away from the window with a purposeful excitement in her eyes. The courthouse bell sounded so clear and cold and there were no birds singing. They've all gone to warmer country. Yes, indeed, old buddy. Stop stuffing biscuits and fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. We're thir we've 30 cakes to bake. It's always the same. A morning arrives in November, and my friend, as though officially inaugurating the Christmas time of year that exhilarates her imagination and fuels the blaze of her heart, renounces its fruitcake weather. Fetch our buggy. Help me find my hat. The hat is found, a straw cartwheel corsaged with velvet roses out of doors have faded. It once belonged to a more fashionable relative. Together we guide our buggy, a dilapidated baby carriage, out to the garden and into a grove of peanut trees, or pecan trees. The buggy is mine, that is, it was bought for me when I was born. It is made of wicker, rather unraveled, and the wheels wobble like a drunkard's legs. But it is a faithful object. Springtimes we take it to the woods and fill it with flowers, herbs, wild fern from our porch pots. Stop. But, it, oh, start again. But it is a faithful object. Springtimes we take it to the woods and fill it with flowers, herbs, wild fern for our porch pots. In the summer, we pile it with picnic paraphernalia and sugar cane fishing poles and roll it down to the edge of a creek. 
It has its winter uses, too, as a truck for hauling firewood from the yard to the kitchen, as a warm bed for Queenie, our tough little orange and white rat terrier, who has survived distemper and two rattlesnake bites. Queenie is trotting beside it now. Three hours later, we are back in the kitchen hauling a heaping buggy load of windfall pecans. Our backs hurt from gathering them. How hard we, how hard they were to find, the main crop having been taken, shaken off the trees and sold by the orchard's owners, who are not us. Among the concealing leaves, the frosted deceiving grass, crackle, a cherry crunch, scraps of miniature thunder sound as the shells collapse and the golden mound of sweet oily ivory meat mounts in the milk bowl glass. Queenie begs to taste, and now and then my friend sneaks her a bite, though insisting we deprive ourselves. We mustn't, buddy. If we start, we won't stop, and there's hardly scarcely enough as there is for 30 cakes. The kitchen is growing dark. Dusk turns the window into a mirror. Our reflections mingle with the rising moon as we work by the fireside in the firelight. At last, when the moon is quite high, we toss the final hull into the fire and with joined sighs watch it catch flame. The buggy is empty. The bowl is brimful. We eat our supper, cold biscuits, bacon, blackberry jam, and discuss tomorrow. Tomorrow, the kind of work I like best begins. Buying cherries and, and citron, ginger and vanilla and canned Hawaiian pineapple, rinds and raisins and walnuts, and whiskey, oh, and so much flour, butter, so many eggs, spices, flavoring, why we'll need a pony to pull the buggy home. But before these purchases can be made, there is the question of money. Neither of us, neither of us have any, except, except for the skinflint sums persons in the house occasionally provide. A dime is considered very big money, or what we earn ourselves from various activities holding rummage sales, selling buckets of hand-picked blackberries, jars of homemade jam and apple jelly and peach preserves, rounding up flowers for funerals and weddings. Once we won 79th prize, $5, in a national football contest. Not that we know a full thing about football. It's just that we enter any contest we hear about. At the moment, our hopes are centered on the $50,000 prize, grand prize being offered to name a new brand of coffee. We suggest AM, and after some hesitation, my friend thought it perhaps sacrilegious, the slogan AM, a uh, Amen. To tell the truth, our only really profitable enterprise was the Fun and Freak Museum we conducted in the backyard woodshed two summers ago. The Fun was a stereocopton, a stereopticon with slide views of Washington and New York lent to us by a relative who had been to those places. She was furious when she discovered why we borrowed it. The freak was a three-legged biddy chicken hatched by one of our hens. Everybody hereabouts wanted to see the bit, that biddy. We charged grown-ups a nickel and kids two cents and took in a good $20 before the museum shut down due to the decease of the main attraction. But one way or another, we did each year accumulate Christmas savings, a fruitcake fund. These monies we kept keep hidden in an ancient bead purse under a loose board, under the floor, under a chamber pot, under my friend's bed. The, ter the purse is seldom removed from this safe location except to make a deposit or, as happens every Saturday, a withdrawal. For on Sundays, on Saturdays, I am allowed 10 cents to go to the picture show. 
My friend has never been to a picture store, nor does she intend to. I'd rather hear you tell the story, buddy. That way I can imagine it more. Besides, a person my age shouldn't squander their eyes. When the Lord comes, let me see him clear. In addition to have never seen a movie, she has never eaten in a restaurant, traveled more than five miles from home, received or sent a telegram, read anything except funny papers and the Bible, worn cosmetics, cursed, wished someone harm, told a lie on purpose, let a hungry dog go hungry. Here are a few things she has done, does do. Killed with a hoe, the biggest rattlesnake ever seen in the county, 16 rattles. Dip snuff secretly. Tame hummingbirds, just try it till they balance on her finger. Tell ghost stories, we both believe in ghosts. To tingling, so tingling they chill, your, in, they chill you in July. Talk to herself, takes walk, take walks in the rain, grow the prettiest japonikis in town, know the recipe for every sort of old-time Indian cure, including a magical wart remover. Now with summer fin su supper finished, we retire to the room in a faraway part of the house where my friend sleeps in a scrap quilt-covered iron bed painted rose pink, her favorite color. Silently, wallowing in the pleasure of conspiracy, we take the bead purse from this secret place and spill its contents on the scrap quilt. Dollar bills, tightly rolled in green as maybuds. Som somber 50-cent pieces, heavy enough to weight a dead man's eyes. Lovely dimes, the liveliest cone, coin. The one that really jingles. Nickels and quarters, worn smooth as creek petals, but mostly a hateful heap of bitter-odored pennies. Last summer, others in the house contracted to pay us a penny for every 25 flies we killed. Oh, the carnage of August, the flies that flew to heaven. Yet it was not work in which we took pride. And as we sit counting pennies, it is though we were back tabulating dead flies. Neither of us has a head for figures. We count slowly, lose track, start again. According to her calculation, we have $12.73. According to mine, we have exactly $13. I do hope you're wrong, buddy. We can't mess around with 13. The cakes will fall or put somebody in the cemetery. Why, why, I wouldn't dream of getting out of bed on the 13th. This is true. She always, spent the thir she spent, she always spends 13th in bed. So to be on the safe side, we subtract the penny and toss it out the window. Of the ingredients that go into our fruitcakes, whiskey is the most expensive, as well as the hardest to obtain. State laws forbid its sale, but everybody knows where you can buy, that you can buy a bottle from Mr. Ha Ha Jones. And the next day, having completed our more pro prosaic shopping, we set out for Mr. Ha Ha's business address, a sinful, to quote public opinion, fish fry and dancing cafe down by the river. We've been there before and on the same errand, but in previous years our dealings have been with Haha's wife, an iodine dark Indian woman with brassy peroxided hair and a dead tired disposition. Actually, we never laid eyes on her husband, though we've heard that he is an, Indi an Indian too, a giant, a giant with razor scars across his cheeks. 
They call him Haha because he's so gloomy, a man who never laughs. As we approached his cafe, a large log cabin festooned inside and out with chains of garish, gay, naked light bulbs, and standing by the river's muddy edge under the shade of trees, under the shade of river trees, where moss drifts through the branches like gray mist. Our steps slowed down. Even Queenie stopped prancing and sticks close by. People have been murdered in Haha's Cafe, cut to pieces, hit on the head. There's a case coming up in court next month. Naturally, these going-ons happens at night when the colored lights cast crazy patterns and the Victoria, Victoria the hi-fi wails, wails. In the daytime, Haha is shabby and deserted. I knock on the door. Queenie barks. My friend calls, Mrs. Haha, ma'am, anyone, anyone to home? Footsteps. The door opens. Our hearts overturn. It's Mr. Haha Jones himself. And he is a giant. He does have scars. He doesn't smile. No, he glowers at us though, sat through those Satan-tilted eyes and demands to know, what do you want with Haha? For a moment, we are too paralyzed to tell. Presently, my friend, my friend half finds her voice, a whispery voice at best. If you please, Mr. Aha, we'd like a quart of your finest whiskey. His eyes lit, tilt more. Would you believe it? Haha is smiling, laughing too. Which one of you is a drinking a man? It's for making fruitcakes, Mr. Aha, cooking. This sobers him. He frowns. That's no way to waste good whiskey. Nevertheless, he treats into the shadowed cafe and seconds later appears carrying a bottle of daisy yellow unlabeled liquor. He demonstrates a sparkle in the sunlight and says, two dollars. We pay him with nickels and dimes and pennies. Suddenly, jangling the coins in his hand like a fistful of dice, his face softens. Tell you what, he proposes, pouring the money back into our bead purse. Just send me one of them fruitcakes instead. Well, my friend remarks on our way home, there's a lovely man. We'll put an extra cup of raisins in his cake. The black stove, stoked with coal and firewood, glows like a lighted pumpkin. Egg beaters whirl, spoons spin around in bowls of butter and sugar, vanilla sweetens the air, ginger spices it, melting nose-tingling odors saturate the kitchen, Suffuse the house, drift out to the world on puffs of chimney smoke. In four days, our work is done. Thirty-one cakes, dampered with whiskey, bask on a windowsill and shelves. Thirty-one cakes, dampered with whiskey, bask on windowsills and shelves. Who are they for? Friends, not necessarily neighbor friends indeed. The larger share are indeed for persons we've met maybe once, perhaps not at all. People who've stuck who struck our fancy, like President Roosevelt, like the Reverend and Mrs. J.C. Lucent, Baptist missionaries in, to Borneo who lectured here last winter, or the little knife grinder who comes through t town twice a year, or Abner Packer, the driver of the six o'clock bus from Mobile, who exchanges waves with us every day as he passes in a dust cloud whoosh, or the young Whistons, a California couple whose car one afternoon broke down outside the house who spent a pleasant hour chatting with us on the porch. Young Mr. Whiston snapped our picture, the only one we've ever had taken. It is because my friend is shy with everyone except 
strangers, that these strangers and merest acquaintances seem to us our truest friends. I think so. And also the scrapbooks we keep of thank yous on White House stationery. Time to time communications from California and Borneo, the knife grinders' penny postcards make us feel connected to e eventful worlds beyond the kitchen with its view of a sky that stops. Now a new December fig branch grates against the window. The kitchen is empty. The cakes are gone. Yesterday we carted the last of them to the post office where the cost of stamps have turned our purse inside out. We're broke. That rather depresses me, but my friend insists on celebrating with two inches of whiskey left in Haha's bottle. Queenie has a spoonful of coffee. She likes her coffee chicory-flavored and strong. The rest we, be, we just divide between a pair of jelly glasses. We're both quite awed at the prospect of drinking straight whiskey. The taste of it brings screwed-up expression and sour shudders. But by and by, we begin to sing, the two of us singing different songs simultaneously. I don't know the words to mind, just come along, come on along, come on along to the dark town stutters ball. But I can dance, that's what I mean to do, is they tap dance in the movies. My dancing shadow rollicks on the walls. My voice, our voices rock the chinaware. We giggle as if unseen hands were tickling us. Queenie rolls on her back. Her paws plow the air as something like a grin stretches across her black lips. Inside of me, I feel warm and sparkly as those crumbling logs, carefree as the wind in the chimney. My friend waltzes around the stove, the hem of her poor calico skirt pinched between her fingers as though it were, it were a party dress. Show me the way to go home, she sings, her tennis shoes squeaking on the floor. Show me the way to go home. Enter two relatives, very angry, potent with eyes that scold, tongues that scowl, scald. Listen to what they have to say, the words tumbling together in a, in a wrathful tune. A child of seven, whiskey on his breath. Are you out of your mind? Feeding a child of seven must be loony, road to ruin. Remember Cousin Kate, Uncle Charlie? Uncle Charlie's brother-in-law, shame, scandalous, humiliation, kneel, pray, beg the Lord. Queenie sneaks under the stove. My, my friend gazes at her shoes, her chin quivers. She, lift her skirt. she lifts her skirt and blows her nose and runs to her room. Long after the town has gone to sleep and the house is silent, except for the ch chimings of the clocks and the sputter of fading fires, she is weeping into a pillow, already as wet as a widow's handkerchief. Don't cry, I say, sitting, on the bottom of, sitting at the bottom of her bed and shivering despite my flannel nightgown that smells of last winter's cough syrup. Don't cry, I beg, teasing her toes, tickling her feet. You're too old for that. It's because she hiccups I am too old, old and funny. Not funny, fun, more fun than anybody. Listen, if you don't stop crying, you'll be so tired tomorrow we can't go cut a tree. She straightens up. Queenie jumps up on the bed, where Queenie is not allowed, to lick her cheeks. I know where we'll find pretty cheese, buddy. And holly, too, with berries big as your eyes. It's way off in the woods, farther than we've ever been. Papa used to bring us their Christmas trees from there. Carry them on, carry them on his shoulder. That's 50 years ago. Well, now, I can't wait for morning. Morning. Frozen rime lusters the grass. The sun round as an orange, and oranges 
Hot weather moons balances on the horizon, burnishes the silver winter woods. A wild turkey calls. A renegade hog grunts in the undergrowth. Soon, by the edge of knee-deep, rapid-running water, we have to abandon the buggy. Queenie wades the stream first, paddles across barking complaints at the swiftness of the current, the pneumonia-making coldness of it. We follow, holding our shoes and equipment, a hatchet and a burlap sack above our heads. A mile or more of chasseting thorns, burrs and briars that catch our clothes, of rusty pine needles brilliant with gaudy fungus and molded, molted feathers. Here, there, a flash, a flutter, an, ex an ecstasy of shrillings remind us that not all the birds have flown south. Always the path unwinds through lemony sun pools and pitch vine tunnels. Another creek to cross, a disturbed armada of speckled trout frosts the water around us and frogs the size of plates practice belly flaps. Beaver workmen are building a dam. On the farther shore, Queenie shakes herself and trembles. My friend shivers, too, but not with cold, but with enthusiasm. One of her hat's ragged roses sheds a petal as she lifts her head and inhales the pine-heavy air. We're almost there. Can you smell it, buddy? As though we were approaching an ocean. And indeed, it is a kind of ocean. Scented acres of holly, holiday trees, prickly leafed holly, red berries shiny as Chinese bells, black crows swoop down them, swoop upon them screaming. Having stuffed our burr-like sack with enough greenery and crimson to gar garland a dozen windows, we set about choosing a tree. It should be, muses my scent, twice as, twice as tall as a boy, so a boy can't, st can't steal the star. The one we pick is twice as tall as me. A brave, handsome brute that survives 30 hatchet strokes before it kills with a crickling, rending cry. Lugging it like a kill, we commence the long trek out. Every few yards, we have to abandon the struggle and sit down and pant. But we have the strength of triumphant huntsmen. That and the trees' viral icy perfume revive us and goad us on. Many compliments accompany our sunset return along the red clay road to town. But my friend is sly and noncommittal when passerbys by praise, the treasure perched on our buggy. What a fine tree, and where did it come from? Yonder way, she murmurs vaguely. Once a car stops and the rich mill owner's lazy wife leans out and whines, give you two bits cash for that old tree. Ordinarily, my friend is afraid of saying no, but on this occasion she promptly shakes her head, we wouldn't take a dollar. The mill owner's wife persists. A dollar, my foot, 50 cents. That's my last offer. Goodness, woman, you can get another. In answer, my friend gently reflects, I doubt it. There's never two of anything. Home, Queenie slumps by the fire and sleeps till tomorrow, snoring loud as a human. A trunk in the attic contains a shoebox of emerine tales, off the opera, opera cape of a curious lady who once rented a room in the house. Coils of frazzled tinsel go gone gold with age, one silver star, a brief rope of dilapidated, undoubtedly dangerous candy cane light bulbs, excellent decorations as far as they go, which isn't far enough. My friend wants our tree to blaze like a Baptist window. Droop with heavy 
snows of or ornament, but we can't afford the made in Japan splendors at the five and dime. So we do what we always do. Sit for days at the kitchen table with scissors and crayons and stacks of colored paper. I make sketches and my friend cuts them out. Lots of cats, fish, too, because they're easy to draw. Some apples, some watermelons, a few winged angels devised from saved up, saved up sheets of Hershey bar tinfoil. We use safety pins to attach these creations to the tree. As a final touch, we sprinkle the branches with shredded cotton picked in August for this purpose. My friend, surveying the effects, clasped her hands together. Now honest, buddy. Doesn't look good enough to eat. Queenie tries to eat an angel. After weaving and ribboning holy holly wreaths for, for all the front windows, our next project is the fashioning of family gifts. Tie-dye scarves for the ladies, for the men a home-brewed lemon and licorice and aspirin syrup to be taken at the first symptoms of a cold and after hunting. But when it comes to time to make each other's gifts, my friend and I separate to work secretly. We would, I would like to buy her a pearl-handled knife, a radio, a whole pound of chocolate-covered cherries. We tasted some once, and she always swears I could live them on, buddy, Lord, yes, I could, and, that would, and that's not taking his name in vain. In, instead, I am building her a kite. She would like to give me a bicycle. She said so on se several million occasions. If only I could, buddy. It's a bad enough in life to do without something you want. But confound it, what gets my goat is not being able to give somebody something you want to give them. Only one of these days I will, buddy, locate you a bite. Don't ask how. Still it may be. Instead, I'm fairly certain that she is building me a kite, the same one as last year, and the year before that, and the year before that. And the year before that, we exchanged, we exchanged sling slots. All of which is fine by me, for we are champion kite flyers who study the wind like sailors. My friend, more accomplished than I, can get a kite aloft when there isn't enough breeze to carry clouds. Christmas Eve afternoon, we scrape together a nickel and go to the butchers to buy Queenie's traditional gift, a good, noble beef bone. The bone, wrapped in, a, in funny paper, is placed high in the tree near the silver star. Queenie knows it's there. She squats at the foot of the tree, staring up at the, in a trance of greed. When bedtime arrives, she refuses to budge. Her excitement is equaled by my own. I kick the covers and turn my pillow as though it were a scorching summer's night. Somewhere a rooster crows, falsely, for the sun is still on the other side of the world. Buddy, are you awake? It's my friend, calling from her room, which is next to mine. And an instant later, she is sitting in my bed holding a candle. Well, I can't sleep a hoot, she declares. My mind is jumping like a jackrabbit. Buddy, do you think Mr. Roosevelt will serve our cake at dinner? We huddle in the bed. She squeezes my hand. I love you. Seems like your hand used to be much smaller. I guess I hate to see you grow up. When you grow up, will we still be friends? I say always. But I feel so bad, buddy. I wanted so bad to give you a bike. I tried to sell my ca cameo Papa gave me. Buddy, she hesitates as though embarrassed. I made you another kite. Then I confess that I had made her one too, and we laugh. The candle burns too short to hold. Out it goes, exposing the starlight, the stars spinning at the window like a visible caroling that goes, that slowly, slowly daybreak waters. Possibly we doze. 
but the beginnings of dawn splashed us like cold water. We're up, wide-eyed and wandering, wandering while we wait for others to waken. Quite deliberately, my friend drops a kettle on the floor. I tap dance in front of the closed doors. One by one, the household emerges, looking as though they'd like to kill us both. But it's Christmas, so they can't. First, a gorgeous breakfast. Just about everything you can imagine, from flapjacks and fried squirrel to hominy grits and honey in the comb, which puts everybody in a good, mu good humor except my friend and I. Frankly, frankly, we're too impatient to get at the presents. We can't eat a mouthful. Well, I'm disappointed. Who wouldn't be? With socks, a Sunday school shirt, some handkerchiefs, a hand-me-down sweater, and a year's subscription to a religious magazine for children, The Little Shepherd. It makes me boil. It really does. My friend has a better haul. A sack of satsums. That's her best present. She's proudest, however, of a white wool shawl knitted by her married sister. But she says her favorite gift is the kite I built her. And it is very beautiful, though not as beautiful as the one she made me, which is blue and scattered with gold and green good conduct stars. Moreover, my name is printed on it, Buddy. Buddy, the wind is blowing. The wind is blowing, and nothing will do till we've, we've run to a pasture below the house where Queenie has scooted to bury her bone, and where, a summer hence, winter will be buried too. There, plunging through the healthy waist-high grass, we unreel our kites, feel them twisting at the string like skyfish as they swim into the wind. Satisfied, sun-warmed, we sprawl in the grass and peel satsums and watch our, sky, our kites cavort. Soon, I forget the socks and the hand-me-down sweater. I'm as happy as if we already won the $50,000 grand prize in that coffee-naming contest. How foolish I am, my friend cries, suddenly alert, like a woman remembering too late. She has biscuits in the oven. You know what I've always thought, she asks in a tone of discovery and not smiling at me, but a point beyond. I've always thought a body would have to be sick and dying before they saw the Lord. And I imagined that he came, that when he came, it would be like looking at the Baptist's window pretty as colored glass with the sun pouring through. Such a shine you don't know is getting dark. And it's been a comfort to think of that shine taking away all the spooky feelings. But I wager it never happens. I'll wager at the very end a body realizes the Lord has already shown himself. That things as they are her hand circles in a gesture that gathers clouds and kites and grass and queening and the earth. Just what they've always seen was seeing him. As for me, I can leave the world with today in my eyes. This is our last Christmas together. Life separates us. Those who know best decide that I belong in a military school and so follows a miserable succession of bugle-blowing prisons, grim, revelry-ridden summer camps. I have a new home, too, but it doesn't count. Home is where my friend is, and there I never go. And there she remains, puttering around the kitchen, alone with Queenie, then alone. Dear Buddy, she writes in her wild, hard-to-read script, yesterday, 
Jim Macy's horse kicked Queenie bad. Be thankful she didn't feel much. I wrapped her in a fine linen sheet and rode her in the buggy down to Spencer's pasture where she can be with her bones. For a few Novembers, she continues to bake her fruitcake single-handed. Not as many, but some. And of course, she always sends me the best of the batch. Also, in every letter, she endorses, she encloses a dime waddled, watered in toilet paper. See a picture show and write me the story. But gradually, her letters, in her letters, she tends to confuse me with her other friend, the buddy who died in the 1880s. More and more 13ths are not the only days she stays in bed. A morning arrives in November, a leafless, birdless coming of winter morning when she cannot rise herself to explain, oh my, it's fruitcake weather. And when that happens, I know it. A message saying so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein had already received. Severing me, severing from me an irreplaceable part of myself, letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why, walking across the school campus on this particular December morning, I am searching the sky as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a pair of lost kites hurrying toward heaven.